Paul Sloan here. Welcome to my podcast series where I talk to some people I know about the influences, turning points and lessons from their lives. I'm pleased to say that my guest today is a business leader, someone who's run Dell in the UK, Amazon in the UK, T-Mobile in the UK, now seen as a digital marketing guru, Brian McBride. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Paul. So can we start, please, by me asking when and where were you born? I was born in October 1955 in a little Scottish fishing village called Glasgow. <laughs> and uh, tell me a little bit about your, your early days and your parents. So we, I, I had um, uh, my father Alex and my mother Mary. My mother was Irish. My dad was from Glasgow. He was a teacher. She was a nurse. I was one of eight children. We lived in a council house. Uh, which was not unusual in Glasgow in those days. There were five boys and three girls. We had five boys in the one bedroom, three girls in the other. We shared one toilet amongst ten people, which again in those days seemed perfectly normal, yeah. although you'd be horrified thinking about it today. And I think we had a pretty happy childhood. We were uh, well-fed, well-clothed, uh, well-educated, and we had everything we could ask for. Any particular childhood memories you'd like to share with us? I think being part of such a large family, you you, you quite quickly learn survival instincts. You quite quickly learn self-sufficiency. So I recall from a very young age, at the age of 10, I was doing a milk round. At the age of 12, I'd mown paper rounds. So I was actually financially self-sufficient. You know, I could buy sweets and comics at a very young age because I think of the large family. I remember one particular uh, time, I suppose, an, an early spark of entrepreneurialism, I had a newspaper round which took a couple of hours because it covered about two miles and then there was a block of high-rise flats being built just up the road from me. And I looked and wondered at these and thought, wouldn't that make a great paper round? And so the first person into a new block of flats was always the caretaker. And so I saw the caretaker, said hello to him, introduced myself as a local paper boy and I gave him a free newspaper. And then every day when I delivered his free newspaper, he'd tell me when people were moving in. So as, as soon as people moved in, and you lived in the 18th floor or something, I could go along and say, do you want a newspaper delivered? And I built up this fabulous round, so when the when the block of flats was fully occupied, I took the lift to the top floor, I walked down, and I delivered papers all the way. And I suppose the, the, the cruelest and kindest thing that I did was the minute the flats were fully occupied, I stopped the free paper for the caretaker. <laughs> Very good. Um, and you went on to Glasgow University? I did, I studied at Glasgow. So it was a quirk of the Scottish education system. that I, I left school after my fifth year, I did what was called hires. And you could go to university after five years. And because I started young, I was actually 16 at university. 16? For the first couple of weeks. And I was I looked 16, in fact, I looked 15. So I couldn't get served in any of the bars. You know, I just looked like uh, somebody who'd hung, hung out from school. Um, but actually, again, because you are so young and because you stand out, it is the making of you. And so to get into things, I threw myself into debating, into societies, and, and really got much more involved in the corporate life than I might otherwise have done. And you lived at home, did you? I lived at home, so I got the bus to university. It was like going to an extended school. You'd get the bus there in the morning and come back at night. So you didn't get the full university experience that people get today. And what degree did you do? I did a, a Master of Arts in Economic History and uh, Politics. I mean, Glasgow was one of the ancient seven in Britain. It was a great university. You know, it was 500 years old. So actually the quality of education was, was great. And uh, that's the one legacy that my father gave us all. He was a teacher. And although I'm sure he could have used some extra money if we were all earning, he, he insisted on us all going through some form of full-time education. Yeah. And you got into politics at university, is that right? Well, I was involved in... Uh, Glasgow was very much a, a debating uh, university. It's, it's created some great politicians. And so I, I was into sort of local... Uh, politics. I actually debated for a club called the Independent Socialists, 
But when I left university and I got into working up in Glasgow, actually my main brush with politics was getting involved in the formation of the SDP way back in the um, early 80s. And you knew some of the political figures, did you? Well, I was. I knew David Owen very well. I was. I was inspired by Roy Jenkins because Roy Jenkins' campaign, the seat that he won, was a seat called Hillhead, which was near the university in Glasgow. I found Roy Jenkins a, a, a quite inspirational guy. I really liked David Owen as well. I liked Shirley Williams, so I was actually quite inspired. And so I, I just wrote away, wrote, sent off my check, and, and unwittingly uh, became the, the the local branch party chair because they sent me all of the, the applicants from the area I lived in and I had to go around them all and meet yes. them all and, and get the party started and it was real grassroots politics, I enjoyed it very much but I did it for about four or five years and realised it wasn't for me. A good friend of mine at the time was Charles Kennedy and Charles uh, had come along to university a couple of years after me and he actually um, was in the US doing a Fulbright scholarship uh, when the election was called and he he you know, went for the seat of what was, I think, then Ross Cromarty and Sky. So Charles was the youngest MP. He'd never done a day's work in his life. He'd gone straight from being a student into becoming an MP and then party leader. So that was the sort of thing that you could do in those days. And he was quite inspirational in his day, wasn't he? he I mean, he was a brilliant debater. I first met him when I was judging the, the Scottish Schools Debating Championship, and he was a, a young, fresh-faced uh, kid from Lochaber up in Fort William. But he was a brilliant debater. And you could see then that he had something special about him and was very... Very inspirational to, to all sorts of people. And did you know Gordon Brown? I knew Gordon Brown. Uh, he was the rector at Glasgow University, and I knew of him. I didn't really know him. Then I got to know uh, Gordon Brown much better when he was Chancellor. I mean, I was lucky in that uh, with the jobs I've done being the UK representative of these big companies, I have met the last five Prime Ministers in Downing Street, you know, on various business things. And probably Gordon Brown is why I engaged with most. Um, we didn't agree on everything. In fact, we didn't agree on many things. But I thought he was... At the time, a good Chancellor of the Exchequer, but it never quite worked out for no. him in number 10. So tell me about your business career. Where did that start? So my business career, my, the first job I got after university was working for Xerox, selling photocopiers. I wasn't sure what to do. I uh, applied for the Inland Revenue, and then because they give you a nice leather briefcase embossed with the, the Queen's crown on it, and I just thought, that's probably not me. I, I didn't fancy standing around at a party telling people I was a tax inspector uh, I looked at teaching. I, my first love was really journalism. And in those days, newspapers, were there was more closing down than opening up. So it was a tough profession to get into. But then suddenly I saw an advert for Xerox. It was paying a lot more money than all of the standard graduate schemes. It gave you a car. It gave you training. So I thought, I'll try this for six months and just see what it's like. Uh, not realising I was going to be cut out for sales. And took to it like a doctor water. Was very successful. Made quite a bit of money. And then that started me off in my, my business career. And when did you join IBM? So I worked for Xerox for about three and a half, four years, and then I joined IBM. And in those days, uh, it was a big mainframe company, so I joined the mainframe division. And, and of course, in those days, you were trained. that The training took a couple of years. Because I'd been selling before, I, I get cut short to a year's training. But IBM's a very thorough, very professional company um, and just gave me an awful lot of professional grounding. I think a lot of the management traits and experience that I've demonstrated since then, uh, I learned you know, by osmosis and by training you know, in my time at IBM. Yeah. And that's where we first met. Yes, indeed. So how long were you with IBM? I was with IBM for about 10 years. And so was I. Did you find it difficult to leave IBM? Well, I didn't really think I would leave. I, 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 what happened to me is that I went to the US on assignment. I worked in headquarters. And I think this is a, a common characteristic. Somebody goes to galactic headquarters of the big company that they work for in the outpost. And when you see the company from the centre, it's quite a different place. And then when you come back to the, to the sticks, to the... The outpost, it's never quite as exciting. 
So when I came back from working in the US, I found IBM just a little bit smaller, a little bit limiting. And although I hadn't a plan to leave, suddenly a job came along and it, and it offered me twice the salary. And I just thought in those days, even nowadays, that's quite an equation. But actually, in retrospect, although it probably paved the path for a lot of what I did after it, it was the most difficult job I ever did, and I spent most of my time there, you know, regretting it, wishing I hadn't done was it. Was that much? No, no, that was a company called Crossfield Electronics, and it was oh. a, it was in what was called the pre-press industry. It made page makeup systems, you know, just at the time when you were able to use Adobe and Apple and uh -huh. Macs and Quark Express. So it was an industry that I knew there was some disruption coming, but I hadn't realised quite what a revolution was going on. And in those days, we we produced equipment that would cost you about two hundred thousand dollars, uh, two hundred thousand pounds. To deploy, and then if you bought a few Macs and the right software, you can actually do a very similar job for about twenty thousand. Yeah. Right? So on that equation, most people that didn't need the highest quality were, were going for the the new stuff. So I arrived in that turmoil, uh, trying to hemorrhage losses. I ended up having to close down countries and really take the take the company down to half of its former size. Found it very difficult to do, um, but you have to do it. You know, when you're the chief exec, you've just got to get on with it. And it was probably, although I didn't like. I liked hardly any of it at all. Uh, what I learned there was probably more than I'd learned in an MBA. Yeah. So I think it was it was the making of me in many ways. And then after that, after that, I joined a company called Maj Networks, which was in in those days it was PCs, and you and I met, you know, around the time of the PC and IBM. Well, there was no point in having a PC in its own. You had to get them to talk to each other. So a thing called networking came along, um, and Maj was make was making the cards that connect these PCs to each other. And it was a great business. He built it very quickly. It did very well. But like many small businesses, he overstretched himself, got into too many different technologies, bought too many other companies, and it ended up falling flat in its face. But funnily enough, he sold a large part of it. Uh, it well, he bought it from an Israeli company, and then he basically gave it back to them uh, uh, to try to make something of it. And we ended up selling it to Lucent, and actually made some money out of it. So although the company hadn't done very well, uh, he made some money out of selling this business back to, to Lucent, and I made some money as well. So that was my first time that I made some serious money. And then you went from there to Dell, and then to T-Mobile, and then to Amazon. Yeah, right? I mean, so I think by then I'm sort of characterised as a kind of a international uh, technology sort of guy who can run Europe or the UK. So Dell around the UK and Northern Europe. Uh, T-Mobile, I came in just after the Germans, after Deutsche Telekom, I bought an old business called One to One, and really the lunatics were running the asylum. You know, although Deutsche Telekom had paid billions for this, the people who ran one to one was just still running this business like it was their own little train set. So I had to come in, um, smack a few heads together, get some synergies, get some leverage of the parent company. And actually it was an exciting time because it was when uh, 3G was coming along, it was when smartphones were coming along, when people were starting to use phones for much more than text and, and voice calls. So I mean, it, it was the start of the transformation of the mobile phone industry. And then after that, I thought it was time to move on. I enjoyed three years there, but I found that I like the German culture. I think German people are very high integrity. They've got a good sense of humour, but they're they're also very over-prepared. You know, you couldn't do anything without a presentation of 20 slides yeah. that had been signed off in advance by 15 different board members. I found the corporate culture a bit too conservative and a bit too collegiate, and I needed to move on. Uh, and then suddenly I, I was lying on a beach in uh, Sandy Lane in Barbados having a holiday with my family, and I got a phone call from Amazon, who I'd never thought of before, and they wanted to meet me and chat about joining them. And I never thought I was into e-commerce. I never thought I was into retail or anything. Um, so I didn't think I was likely to take it further. But I met one or two people um, and then just found the vision very exciting. And then my final interview was a day in Seattle where I had 10 interviews culminating in an interview with Jeff Bezos. And uh, 
Jeff was a, a, a he was the greatest guy I worked for, very visionary. Um, he had a kind of maniacal laugh. I mean, it was quite scary at times. And, and I was at the end of this in, interview trail. I was punch drunk. I'd been jet lagged. I'd been flown there overnight. I'd all these 12 interviews. I was going back that night. And at the end of it, I'm just uh, almost not quite dozing off, but feeling quite tired. And, and Jeff says, I've just got one last question for me. I says, what's that? He said to me, how many windows are there in London? And I stopped in my tracks. I thought, bloody hell, what is it? And, and I... And I quickly did a calculation, and I and I came up with a number. I think my number was about thirty-four million. And he said, "How did you get to that number?" And I explained that I was trying to uh, divide London into business premises and residential premises, and I applied a number of windows for a business, number for a resident, and I came up with a number. And he's and he then shook my head and said, uh, "Shook my hand and said, thanks very much. We'll we'll be in touch." And as he was going out the door, I said to him, by the way, what was the answer? How many windows are there in London? He said, I don't know. And he just wanted to see my thought process. Yes. So that was, and that, that just showed me what Jeff Bezos was all about. But I must have come up with a, a reasonable logic because I, I got the job. Uh, I spent five and a half years working for Jeff and he's the most visionary, the most strategic, the most far-sighted uh, business leader, entrepreneur that I've ever worked for. Great guy. And then you had an illness. I did. I had. I was well. Actually, towards the end of my time, I didn't know it was the end of my time in, in Amazon. But I was thinking uh, it was probably time to move on. And then I, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I was very lucky because I, it was picked up in the routine medical. My PSA was higher than it should have been. The prostate specific antigen test, and I went to the doctor, and he said. And normally they don't dive in and try and do something. So you, you normally do another test and see if it's stabilised. It's a very imprecise test, as you may know. But anyway, the net of it was that I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. It was at a fairly early stage, so I was lucky at a whole range of treatment options. And I had an operation which was fairly minor, and I was, you know, out of hospital after a day. I was up and running after a couple of days. I was playing golf after a couple of weeks. And um, Amazon had very kindly given me six months off, but we had agreed that I was going to leave. So I had my successor on board, uh, and I was just swinging down from Amazon. So I had a very pleasant six months just brushing up. So my what leg. year did you leave Amazon? So I left Amazon uh, in September 2011. And, and what have you done since? Well, I then uh, started what, what is called a portfolio career. So I decided that I wanted to not work full-time for one company. I wanted to be on a number of boards because I think that gives you variety and it allows you to contribute something, you know, of the stuff that you've learned along the way. So I picked up an non-executive directorship at a company called Computer Centre, I became a member of the advisory board of a Chinese company called Huawei. And then the biggest opportunity came along when ASOS, a fashion company that I knew very well, that I tried to buy when I was at Amazon, um, the chief exec, Mick Robertson, another founder, another great entrepreneur, called me and said that uh, the chairman was leaving and they were looking for a new chairman. Would I be interested? And I thought this was very early in my portfolio career to be taken on a chairmanship. But I knew the industry. I knew the company. I really liked them. And so... I became chairman there in uh, the fourth quarter of 2012, so almost five years ago. So of all those things you've done, what would you say was your proudest achievement? What was the toughest challenge you faced and, and overcame? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. My proudest achievement? I, I think probably when I was at IBM, uh, I, was, I was picked out. I was moving through quite quickly as a young manager, and there was a role in IBM called the branch manager, which was running your own business, and it was, you know, you'd have probably 100 people working for you. And I got that at a very early age, and that was the first time I felt that I'd sort of made it. It was quite a prestigious role in IBM, and although I've done bigger things since then, that was the first real senior management job, and I think it's probably the one that gave me uh, most satisfaction. And what's the biggest mistake you've made in your career? I'm not arrogant enough to say I haven't made any mistakes. I probably have. I haven't made any huge clattering ones. I mean, I think I talked earlier about joining Crossfield. I think it probably wasn't a mistake, but 
Um, had I had my time again, I might not have made that same decision. I think the, the, the error of judgment I made during my time at Crossfield, we were closing down uh, a lot of countries. We just couldn't afford operations in them. We didn't need all the people we had there. And there was a small team of us going out to the countries and announcing the closure program. It was very traumatic for people because they were losing their jobs. And we had to do it within a very quick period because the word would get out. So I went to two or three countries in two days and we couldn't get to them all. And we had a business in Italy. And I was advised, to, since I couldn't be there and the local manager would do it, that I should do a, a little piece to camera on videotape, as it was in those days, and announce why we were closing it. Uh, and looking back, I think that probably was pretty insensitive. The videotape was played, somebody leaked it to the local press, and then the local business papers were full of headlines about being sacked by videotape. <laughs> and so probably just a lack of cultural understanding, with a lack of sensitivity. That would be something I wasn't proud of. And you mentioned Jeff Bezos. Uh, who else was influential on you? Who who else? I liked um, Mike. I, I've always liked working for uh, founders, entrepreneurs. I've never had the courage uh, to do it myself. I've never been employee number one. I've never bet the farm as these guys have. Uh, so I really uh, love all entrepreneurs because they're very special people. Michael Dell was great. Again, you know, Michael saw a gap in the market. I mean, the PC had been around. IBM had created it. But Michael saw uh, a need for customizable PCs, basically build your own, uh, and he went for that and created a very successful company. And I found him very visionary, very on the ground. When he came to the UK, he was great. You know, I would get a couple of days of his time every quarter, and we would go and call on some big customers. We'd go and call on Gordon Brown or Tony Blair and do the political thing and do some press stuff. But he, he was really, uh, he had no ego at all, no vanity about me. He really put himself at the beck and call of the local country manager. To and he still what, keeps going. Yeah, so Michael stepped back. Uh, but then, you know, I think the business started to wobble a bit. Uh, this was after I left, not because I left. Um, and he had to come back in. And now, of course, he's taken the company private. He's bought EMC, so he's made some huge acquisitions. And, he, and he's back in the driving seat and doing pretty well. Hmm. I think um, many founders find it hard to let go of their baby, I think. You know, Jeff's still, to an extent, running Amazon. Bill Gates successfully got away from Amazon. But I think many founders find it hard yeah. to, to let go. And you've met a lot of senior political figures. Who's impressed you there? I mean, I think uh, I think Tony Blair was impressive just because, you yes. know, he, he was very much, he captured the mood of the moment. And, and it's... It's easy to rewrite history, you know, looking back. I'm not going to get into his legacy, but I think at the time he really did summarise what Britain was all about. I think he did represent Cool Britannia. I thought he was, you know, a great communicator. He was very charismatic. Yeah. yeah, and he surrounded himself with some very bright people. So I liked, I liked David Cameron. You know, I've met Cameron before. And again, I found him a very decisive person as well. I think it's a tough and lonely job being a prime minister, being a politician, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it for other tea in China. But actually, when you look back... I think Britain has been um, quite fortunate in most of the Prime Ministers that we've had. Well, there's still time for you, Brian. I think not. I think uh, I think the phrase not for all the tea in China sums up my, my view of politics and political life. I actually spend a lot of time, not with politicians, I spend a lot of time, I do a lot of advisory work for government, I spend a lot of time working with senior civil servants, with permanent secretaries, I know many of those. And actually they're a very impressive bunch and actually I prefer to work with them because you get stuff done. The politicians understandably think in electoral cycles, think in policy terms, whereas the people that keep it going are the civil servants. And Brian, when did you become a director of Celtic Football Club? 
I joined the board of Celtic in 2005, and although it was a public company, I mean, Celtic's major shareholder was uh, an Irish entrepreneur called Dermot Desmond. I'd met Dermot at some of the matches because uh, I'd been involved. In- and you'd been a lifelong supporter, I presume. Yeah, oh, oh, man and boy. But having left Glasgow many years ago, there was a period where I hadn't really followed them physically. I always followed the story. So was this a dream come true? Was it a hard business decision to join them, or was it an emotional thing? Oh, no. I think it's the sort of thing that if, if you're ever offered the chance of joining the board of the club that you've supported, you, you would jump at it with both hands and, and so I never gave it two thoughts. I mean the process because it's a PLC you know it, it interviews and nomination committees and stuff but um, I jumped at it and, and because it's a PLC I mean there are there's some serious business to be done you know there are board meetings and audit committee meetings and you've got to make sure that the clubs make money you look at the problems that clubs today have got by not having you know prudent financial stuff but it, it was a wonderful thing to do and but you got to go to all the big games and meet the stars oh yeah you, i mean you get you could you could have gone to every game they played living in near london and with celtic being based in glasgow it was difficult to do that but i went to all of the rangers games all of the european games any of the big cup games and i made a point of getting around every ground in scotland and, and getting to to visit all of the clubs that, that were in the Scottish League with them. And, and actually, as you say, sitting in the director's box or going down to the dressing room after the game or sitting in a board meeting where the manager comes in to tell you his thoughts in the team and how he wants to reshape it or how much money he needs for a transfer. So to be actively involved in the big decisions that a football club makes is just about as good as it gets. And my time, whenever I met politicians and other business people and they've got a little brief about me you know brian did this yeah. did that with the the one thing that everyone used to always ask me about was celtic they didn't ask me about amazon or dell or t-mobile you know government ministers and senior people would always say what was it like being on the board of celtic so there's something magical about a football club it's very much it is the it is the, the british working class game and did you meet sir alec fergus i met fergie a few times i met him when uh, Celtic uh, beat Manchester United in the Champions League match but Nakamura scored a brilliant free kick and I've met him a few times since then and I think Alec Ferguson is uh, is one of the game's legends yes. you know, but he's also um, very quietly he does a lot of work behind the scenes he supports Drum Chapel Amateurs his old football club up there he does a lot of fundraising a lot of charity stuff so I think he's a legend I've got a lot of time for him Would he have been a great leader in any other field? I don't think so. And I know that he went off to do some talking at Harvard and talk about leadership, you know, and it's the same about generals and military people. Although they're great at what they do, I'm not sure how transportable some of those leadership skills are. So looking back on your life, what would you say was the turning point? What was it that set you on your path to success? I think... I think it probably goes back to those early days in Glasgow, as I say. I think being one of eight kids, having to fend for yourself, never being spoon-fed. So that, that self-sufficiency, I think, was a pretty important starting point. And, then I th- and I think it all just, it wasn't a master plan, but it all just did happen. Well, I think going to university the way I did um, then, you know, helped me grow up very quickly and helped me acquire a bunch of different skills in terms of communication skills and debating skills and also I was well educated there as well and then each of the each of the jobs I've done has just laid on additional skills so I've been really lucky in that I've worked for some fabulous companies you know mainly in the technology space I'm not a scientist but as you said earlier I'm sort of characterized as a kind of digital thinker and so I've just been lucky you know I mean people who after the grace of God go I could have spent a lifetime working you know in, in the coal mines or in shipbuilding right. or, or, or the other jobs that people did in Glasgow I was really really lucky so what message or moral would you tell people listening, so especially younger people? I think I'd say two or three things. Um, I mean, be self-aware. It's important to understand your strengths and your weaknesses. You know, it's good to start with a good objective view of yourself and, and, and don't just form it by your own thoughts. You know, take feedback from people about what you do well, what you don't do well. 
and I'd say that if you look around, successful people in life have not got there without working hard. So be self-aware, uh, work pretty hard, keep learning. You know, you know, your website helps people keep up with the latest trends. I think that it doesn't matter what age you are, you can always keep learning. So it's work hard, uh, it's be self-confident, keep learning, and finally, have fun. Life is too short, you know, just to spend all your time banging your head off a wall at a job that you don't enjoy or working with people that you don't like. So you've got to make sure that given how much of your waking time um, you spend at work, you've got to find something that you like doing and a, and a culture you like doing it. So you've got to enjoy yourself. So it may be early to ask this question, but how would you like to be remembered? What, what would your legacy be? I, I don't have any grand legacy. I don't have any uh, great inscription from my tombstone. I would hope that people who, who knew me and looked back would think that I was just a decent bloke that helped people along the way. That'd be very good. Brian, thank you very much. Paul, thank you.